Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Thanks, Izan. So, um, just by the way, for those who don't know, um, Oak House is 148 Oak Avenue in Ferndale. So, <laughs> you hear a lot about Oak House, so if you didn't know where it was, that's where it is, 148 Oak Avenue in Ferndale. So, we've been reading the last, we started this month reading through the book of Hebrews uh, uh, together, sort of reading a chapter a day. We started on the 30th of November, and the idea is that, you know, by the time Christmas comes along, we've read through Hebrews twice. So, we'll read up to chapter 13 and then start over again and, 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 and read again from, from chapter 1 to 13. And, and so, we're just sharing a, a couple of messages out of um, the book of Hebrews, and I especially just want to highlight Hebrews 13, verse 8 for you. If you can just uh, throw up that um, slide. It says, oh, no, that's, that's the wrong, wrong slide. I don't know. I think you, you've got the wrong uh, slide pack open. Um, Rodin, that's, the, that's an old one. Maybe, maybe it didn't update. But anyway, um, Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And when we get, as we get to, towards the end of the year, it's often good to look back at the year that is past, make sure that we process it um, in Christ and th- through the eyes of faith. Also look forward to the future, to the year that lies ahead with faith in Jesus. But we do all of that so that we can live better in today, so that we can obey God better um, and, and, and just live more like Jesus in today. So we look to the past and we look to the future so that we can live better in the present. Um, and that's what I want to um, share about uh, this morning. I've entitled my sermon, Make Every Effort to Enter, because that's part of the scripture I'm going to read from in Hebrews 3 and 4. I'm going to read a, a, a rather lengthy portion of Scripture. So I just want you, it's going to be up on the screen, but I just want you to sit back and relax it and, and enjoy it. It's really a powerful and a beautiful um, portion of Scripture. And a, um, it, there's, a, there's a lot there. It's very rich. So um, you... We won't be able to cover nearly everything in, in, in the Scripture, but I just want you to look out for a couple of um, different um, themes while I'm reading um, Hebrews. I'm going to read Hebrews 3, verse 7 to 4, verse 13. And I just want you to look out for four different themes. Firstly, the theme of the Word of God. You'll see that God's voice and God's Word uh, is repeated multiple times during this passage. Either by Scripture being quoted or the Word of God being referred to. Sometimes the word message is is used, but the word message translates the same Greek word logos, which means word. Okay, so the Word of God is is one theme I want you to look out for. The the other theme is the theme of today. It says, today if you hear my voice. Uh, Let's encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, you know. So so that theme of of today. And then you'll you'll notice that there's a, a strong theme of of the heart. Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Um, And the Word of God, you know, sees our hearts. And also faith. 
faith that comes from the heart. Um, so, so that theme of faith and the heart. And then the last, the fourth one I want you to look out for is just the theme of rest. So there's a very strong theme of rest that comes through in this passage. So I'm going to read it. Uh, and as I read it, just look out for those four, four themes. So it says in Hebrews 3 from verse 7, So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I'm, uh, I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firm to the very end. As has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies, per bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And then from chapter 4, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none, of, uh, that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message or word they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said so I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest and yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words on the seventh day God rested from all his works and again in the passage above he says they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following the example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Yes, Lord, and we we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is living and powerful, that it is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And thank you, Lord, that it penetrates even to our hearts. And we open up our hearts. We don't want to harden our hearts, but we want to open up our hearts to receive your word and to respond to your word by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, he says, he talks about today. So, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have to look at our past through the eyes of faith. We also look at, have to look at our future through the eyes of faith. But that's so that we can live by faith in the present, in today. Okay? And so, uh, what, what the main thing that he's saying, and, and, and you'll see that, that in this portion of Scripture that I just read, it starts with the Word of God. It says, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes Scripture, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. And then it ends with Scripture. It says, the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, so, so, so the the word of God as to frames this passage, and and he talks about rest, and he talks about today. But what he wants us to do today, what the writer to the Hebrews says, what we must focus on, and what we must do today is we must hear the voice of God. But he also says that hearing the voice of God, hearing the word of God, is not enough, because you can hear and harden your heart and rebel, like the generation in the wilderness did. Or you can hear and respond with a soft heart by faith and obey. And that's the, 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 the choice that is set before us. So I just want to um, go through a few places where, where this portion talks about the Word of God. But, but, but understand that everything he's saying, what, what he's basically saying is that if today, while it is called today, <laughs> in other words, every day while you're living it, you can hear and respond positively from your heart to the Word of God, then you'll be okay. That's the one thing that you have to do. Obey God's Word in the present. Um, And God's Word appears in the beginning, the middle, and and the end of this uh, passage. So, firstly, in in chapter 3, verse 7, and, and, you know, a few days ago we read this with our kids, um, and, and it struck me that, um, right there at the beginning, it says, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Notice what, what the writer to the Hebrews uh, does and says here. It's actually amazingly powerful. He says, Whenever the, the Word of God, whenever you read the Word of God, because he's quoting there from Psalm 95, from verse 7 to 11. Whenever you read the Word of God, 
it's as though it, it's speaking to you as much today as it did to them in their today. Okay? In other words, even though the Word of God wasn't written directly to us, it most certainly was written for us. And it applies to us as much as it applies to them to whom it was directly written. But, but notice that, that, that what he says goes even further because he pre- prefaces his little, um, the, 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 the scripture in, in Psalm 95 that he quotes. He prefaces it by saying, So, as the Holy Spirit says. Notice he doesn't say, just bring up that scripture again. Um, he doesn't say, as the Holy Spirit said, past tense. Did you notice that? In other words, what he's saying to us is that whenever we read Scripture and the Scripture speaks to us today, it's the Holy Spirit speaking to us. It's not something that the Holy Spirit had said in the past. It's something the Holy Spirit is saying right now to us. So if you, if you want to hear the Holy Spirit, the place that you must start and the place that I must start is with Scripture. Because that's still the main place that the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Now, um, Scripture itself says that the Holy Spirit also speaks outside of Scripture. That there is stuff like prophecy and tongues and all that kind of stuff. And Scripture makes it very clear um, in 1 Corinthians 13 that that continues and it will continue until Christ comes. The, the manifestations of the, of the Spirit. Um, if you have questions about that, you're welcome to ask me afterwards and I'll show you what I, what I mean by that. But what the writer to the Hebrews says, and, and you know, sometimes, uh, and I think we must just own this as, you know, sort of Pentecostal charismatic churches, that we are rightly excited about prophetic words and that kind of stuff. And, and we're, we're rightly excited about the Holy Spirit speaking to us prophetically, but sometimes we neglect to be as excited about what the Holy Spirit says through Scripture. And that, and that is wrong and, and can be dangerous. If we love the Holy Spirit and we love His voice, we're going to love His voice whenever He speaks to us. And we're most certainly going to love His voice when He speaks to us in Scripture. So when we read, and, and I just want to encourage you with this, when we read through the book of Hebrews as families this festive season, let's not read it as though it's something that God said in the past that only relates to us sort of almost by the way. Let's read it as something that the Holy Spirit is saying to us now in the present and that applies to us today as much as it did to them. And, and then in, in, uh, he goes on and he says, Today, um, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. And, and, and what, what, what the author to the Hebrews says, he says that today of that David was writing to his audience when we read Scripture correctly, it's also today for us. It's today for, the, for us Hebrews, the church of the Hebrews, which was a, a, a mostly Jewish church. Um, we don't know where it was or who wrote it. Um, we're pretty sure it wasn't Paul, even though Martin Luther put, put uh, Hebrews after Paul's last letter because he sort of suspected it might be Paul. But we don't know who it was, but he's saying that that. David's today is our today. 
And that's how we must read Scripture and we, how we must understand and how we must receive Scripture. We must receive it in the here and now as though it's speaking to us um, in the here and now. Whenever we hear God's voice, we must hear it speaking to us today. And whenever we hear Scripture, we must hear it as God's voice speaking to us today. And then he goes on and he says in, in, in chapter 3, verse, verse 15, um, he says, As has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as uh, you did in the, in the rebellion. In other words, the Bible is God's voice. Something very special happens here. When, when I write something to you, it, it enters only through your eyes. There's, there's no sound. There's no voice that comes with it. But when God writes something to you, it enters through your eyes when you read it, but it also enters through your ears because what God has written... In other words, what, what, what this writer to the Hebrews is saying is he's saying that what we read in Scripture is not just what David wrote or what Moses wrote or what the apostles wrote in terms of the New Testament. Yes, they wrote it, but God is speaking through it. You see, it's so easy to say, oh, well, it's just a message written by humans. And in a sense, it is. It most certainly is a message written by humans in human language. But it is not just that. It is also at the very same time God's voice, God speaking through those humans who wrote uh, what they had written. In other words, we, we need to feel the, the weight of God's voice. We need to not just see what humans have written, but we need to hear what God is saying through what they have written every time we read Scripture. And you cannot read Scripture just like you read the newspaper. Um, and then it says, unfortunately, the, that generation, they heard, they hardened their hearts, and they rebelled in verse 15 and 16. Then in, in, in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, the message or word... That, that word message is the same word logos, word, they heard, it says did not benefit them. It did not benefit them. Um, and it says that the good news was preached to us, proclaimed to us as to them. And then it says this message, this good news is, is part of the message, the word, did not benefit them. So, so in other words, firstly, let us see that the Word of God contains the good news of God. Okay, the Word of God contains the good news of God. And, and the good news, uh, I love that, that um, rewording of that, that hymn that, that Alex read this morning. That's the good news. The good news is that God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You know, we constantly seeking rest, striving for rest, yearning for rest. But we cannot find rest. Uh, St. Augustine said it so beautifully. He said, you have made our hearts for you, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Now, everyone's looking for rest, but the only place we'll find rest is in God, and that's part of the good news. The good news is that God has prepared a rest for us. He's prepared a rest for us. Um, and, and his word contains his good news, his gospel. And then in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, um, 
it goes on and it, it says, For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. So there, the words again. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. Um, and and it, there is obviously referring to Genesis 2 verse 2, the account of creation. It says when, when uh, on the seventh day God rested. But these words are what God has spoken. So it's not just what Moses has written, it's what God has spoken. And then in, in verse thir- uh, 12 and 13, right at the end, it says, For the word of God is alive and active. What he's saying here is, is amazing. He's saying the word of God has agency. My words are just vibrations being projected through the air and maybe being amplified through a speaker and recorded or something. But God's words are alive. They, 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 they're not just vibrations. The Bible often says that there are seeds that can sprout, that can germinate and sprout and grow and bear fruit. It's a living word and it's an active word. It works in your life. If you allow God's word to be planted in the soil of your heart, it'll work in your heart. It'll change your heart. And that's a big part of what discipleship is. You see, so often we make the mistake of trying to change our own hearts apart from the word of God. But what, what he's saying is all we need to do is open up our hearts, not, uh, not hardening our hearts, but opening up our hearts to receive God's word. And his word is alive and active, and his heart, word will change our hearts. Sharper than any double-edged sword. And a double-edged sword obviously cuts both ways. So that means that, because he says, you know, encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. And, and, and what he means in context when, he's, when he quotes the word of God, is encourage one another with the word of God. But when I encourage you with the word, there's a sharp end of the word that cuts you, but it's a double-edged sword, so it cuts me as well. So the word gets ministered to me when I receive it, but also when I give it. It cuts both ways. And that's why we must encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, is because we must take the word that we received and give it so that it's ministered to us twice. Over and over again. Um, sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrates, it penetrates even the division of soul and spirit. Of joints and marrow. Joints and marrow being the, the flesh, the body. So, so it says that it, it's, we cannot physically see the, the separation between soul and spirit. We don't know exactly where it is. We don't fully understand these unseen, invisible, internal things. But the Word of God knows exactly where the separation is. Okay? Even joints and marrow, every, everything, the, the most minute things, the Word of God can discern the difference between, between them. And then it says it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. And from the sight, what he's saying here is from the sight of his Word. Um, from, from, from his Word and what his Word discerns and exposes. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, what he's saying is, when, he's, when it says uncovered and laid bare, it literally means naked. The one word is, is naked, exposed, uncovered. 
And the other word is helpless. Um, it's the, the, the picture, it was a, a word that was sometimes used in, in military terms when, when, when you had struck down an enemy and you wa- we wanted to slay him, you would take his, you'd take his hair and pull back his head so that you could, you know, kill him. And, and that pulling back the hair to expose the throat, that exposure but, uh, laid bare but also helpless. It says, before God we are like that. We are like enemies of God that have been the word of God strikes us down and it pulls back our hair and we're almost ready to be slain, to be killed. And there's nothing we can do about it. So, and it says we must give an account to him. Now, here's the thing. If everything we do every day is exposed before the God to whom we must give an account, then... then we must make sure that in everything we do every day, every moment of every day, that we please God. Because otherwise, that being exposed and helpless before Him, He's going to slay us. We're going to die. So it implies hard work. Every day, every moment of every day, there's no rest for the wicked. So, So here's the thing. In order to deal with this fact that we must give an account to God of everything and there's nothing we can hide from Him, it requires hard work so that we don't end up on the wrong side of Him to we must, we must give an account. But the reality is none of us can do that hard work. It's beyond us. None of us, even if we work as hard as we can, can we possibly be good enough to on that day when we must give an account be fully satisfying to God? If, if our works are put um, to the test, we will fail. Because remember, it doesn't only judge our soul, our spirit, our, our joints and marrow, our, our bodies, what we do physically. It also judges our hearts. The thoughts... And intentions of our heart in, in the Bible is not just the emotions like we think about heart in modern English. It's, it, it includes your thoughts, your emotions, your will, your attitude, everything. So the whole internal being is summarized by the heart. Even when we, when we do right physically, often in our thoughts and our attitude we're doing wrong and we're sinning. So how do we enter rest. I just want to, I'm going to come back to this in, in, a, in a moment, but I just want to go back and if, if you can just, uh, Rodin, just bring up the, the, the scriptures again from the beginning. Um, it, it talks often in, in, in the scripture about rest. Do not harden your heart in your rebellion. And he talks about uh, later on, they will, I said in my anger, they will not, in verse 11, they will not enter my rest. So there's, there's a, a rest that God says is my rest that you must enter. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands. Okay, it's His rest. that There's a promise of entering His rest. There's a promise that, think about the implication of this. Rest is something that 
you must work for. Right? Let's be honest with one another. You have to work for rest. If, if you just rest all the time and never work, you're going to go hungry. You're not going to have food to eat. You're going to go, you're not going to be able to sleep because you're not going to have a bed to sleep in. Okay? If you, if you want to sleep in a bed, someone has to make that bed. And, and, I, and I mean it in both senses of the word. They literally have to put the wood together to make the bed, and then they have to put the mattress and the blankets and all the kind of stuff on and make the bed. In other words, there's work going into making the bed physically and making up the bed so that you can sleep in it and rest in it. And that's a picture of rest. Rest is something you have to enter into. So rest is work that has been done that you enter into. It's the same, you know, um, you, you rest in the work that you have done. So you, you work in the week and then you have enough. You've made money and you can buy food and you can, re- you can rest in it. Um, retirement is a form of entering into the rest of the work that you've done. So you work for, say, 40 years, you know, as whatever, and then you, you sort of put away some money and then you enter into that rest when you retire. Can you, can you see? So, so there's no rest without work. It's important that we see that. Okay? Now, notice he says, my rest, his rest, um, in, in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 3, again he says, um, now we who have entered that rest, we who have entered that rest, God's rest, rest is that rest, um, in chapter 4, it says, oh, in, in chapter 4, verse, yeah, at the end of, of chapter 4, verse 3, it says, they shall not enter my rest. In, in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, and uh, yet his works have been complete since the creation of the world. And then in verse 4, it says, for everywhere he has, for somewhere has spoken about the seventh day, uh, on the seventh day, God rested from his works. Um, in verse 5, uh, it says, and again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. In verse 6, he talks about that rest. In verse 8, he says, it's the only scripture that, talk, that doesn't talk about God's rest. It says, if Joshua had given them rest. Okay, it talks about rest, but it, it talks about, so if Joshua had given them rest, a human had given them rest, they, they, they would not have remained a, a rest to enter into. Um, then he talks about, in, in verse 9, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What is that Sabbath rest? It's God's rest. Because God instituted the Sabbath in creation when he rested from his work. Okay? Um, and then in verse 10, it says, um, Let us therefore make every effort, let, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. So it's not just any rest he's talking about, it's that rest. It's a specific rest. Okay? Um, just see, yeah, you know, that rest. So, when you rest, you enter into work that has been done, either work that you've done for yourself or work that someone else has done. You can eat food someone else has made, enter into the, that rest. And, and what God is saying is that the gospel, part of the gospel is that life is hard work. Eventually it wears you out, it tires you out. 
life in this fallen world is, is hard work. It wears you out. And you have to rest. But you can only rest in work that someone has done, that you have done or that someone else has done for you. And the good news of the gospel is that God allows us to enter into his rest, my rest, God's rest, that rest. Because every other rest won't last. Every other rest won't last. Only God's rest will last. So, so what is God's rest? And, and this passage tells us, it says his, his works were completed or finished from the beginning, from the creation of the world. So when God in six days created the heavens and the earth, hard work, although in, God makes it look easy, he just says, let there be light, and there's light, and, you know, that kind of thing. He forms us from the dust of the ground, breathing to, to man the, the breath of life. He rested on the seventh day. Now, did God rest because he was tired? No. The Bible makes it over and over clear that God rested because he was finished. Not because he was tired. Okay, God doesn't get tired. If you have unlimited energy, you don't get tired. There are scriptures that even say, your Redeemer, God, doesn't sleep, He doesn't slumber, He doesn't grow tired, in so many words. So God rested not because He was tired, but because He was finished. Now think about this. At the very end of the six days of creation, God created humanity. He created Adam from the dust of the ground, breathing into his um, mouth the breath of life. And then He took Eve out of Adam, out of his side, out of his rib, and created Eve. So the day on which God rested was the seventh day for God, but the first day for Adam and Eve. The very first thing they experienced was resting with God in what God had done. You see, here's the difference between the gospel on the one hand and religion on the other hand. Religion is working for salvation. The gospel, Christianity, is working from salvation. Religion is working in order to be saved. Christianity, the gospel Christianity, is working because you are already saved. It makes a big difference, all the difference in the world, whether you're working for salvation or from salvation. It makes all the difference in the world. That's the difference between... Um, Christianity and Pharisaism. The Pharisees worked in order to be saved. Jesus taught his disciples, yes, you must work hard, but because you are already saved, not in order to earn your salvation. You see, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Something that Dallas Willard says, and, 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 and I totally agree with that. Grace actually produces effort. It's not opposed to effort. Paul says, by the grace of God, I worked harder than them all. Okay, grace produces effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. It produces effort, but it is opposed to earning. Grace is free. It's a gift. You cannot deserve it. You cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. And when you work for salvation, when you fail, you feel like you're not saved. And when you think you succeed, you think that you deserve salvation, that God owes you. And that's why people who are religious, like the Pharisees, are so insecure on the one hand, underconfident when they feel that they're not making their standards, and so 
arrogant and overconfident when they feel them and judgmental when they feel they're making their own standards and like oh you know i'm i'm earning my salvation i'm working for it i deserve it um and and you plebs you know are not as good as i am and not as holy and not you know that that whole holier as thou that, that comes from being religious like a pharisee by working for your salvation because whether you fail or succeed in your own estimation to work for your salvation you're not going to be christian and you're not going to be very nice but when you say those who have entered into god's work have rested from their work as god rested from his the work that you rest from is the work of earning your salvation then you say god i don't have to earn my salvation i don't have to work for my salvation because someone else worked for me and i'm entering into that work just like the Adam and Eve did work. God commanded them, six days you shall work. So it's important to work. There's nothing wrong with work per se. But you mustn't work for rest. The rest comes first. The seventh day, that's why the, uh, the seventh day of creation is the first day of our creation, of our experience. The same thing with Jesus. The new creation was exactly when did Jesus rise from the dead? It was three days in the grave, and then after the Sabbath, on the first day of the week, the Sunday, early in the morning, the women come to the tomb, and the tomb is empty. So that mean, means he rose. And it's a, it's a new creation week that starts with work that Jesus had done on the cross and in the grave. And we enter into his completed work. Now, I, I, you need to get this because on the one hand if you don't get this you cannot be saved because salvation is not trusting in the work that you do to make yourself good enough part of repentance you see when religious people like pharisees repent they only repent of their bad works when christians repent they repent even of their good works because they realize their good works cannot save them they repent of trusting in their good works. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Trust in Him and Him alone. Gloriously complete. So, His complete work is the only thing that can save. Don't tr trust, don't enter into the rest of the work that you have done or that some other human being has done for you. Enter into the rest that, of the work that he has done you see god completed his work and then he rested in it and he invites us into his rest resting in his completed work do you rest in the completed work of jesus because unless you do that you cannot be saved but more than that unless you rest in his completed work you cannot rest because you'll always be working. Even when you're resting, you'll, you'll, there'll be that feeling of, oh, I'm not good enough. I must, I must justify myself. I must, I must prove myself. I must prove that I'm good enough. So, so there's always a working underneath the work, and that's what wears you out. That's what causes you to not be able to switch off. There's, um, there's this um, famous movie, Chariots of Fire, which was about... Um, what was the guy's name? Eric Little, yes. And he was, he was a born-again Christian. And he refused to run on the Sunday. And I think, in a sense, he got it wrong because um, it, it's not about what day it is. But, but I, I respect the principle he was applying of, 
I'm going to honor God. So he, he didn't run, um, you know, in a race that he probably would have won um, because it was a Sunday. And, and there's this contrast, and eventually there's this thing how he breaks the four-minute barrier, you know, and, and runs the first sub-four-minute mile. But there's this contrast between him and, you know, him just, I don't have to run, I don't have to win a gold medal at the Olympics to prove myself, to, to justify my existence, to, to justify my right to live, to be good enough. And there's this contrast with a friend that he had who ran the 100 meters. I can't remember his name, but, but um, he was asked by a reporter, you know, why do you practice so hard? And, and this guy apparently said, when that gun fires, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Can you see that there was a work that he had to do to justify himself, justify his existence, make himself feel good about him, himself, make himself feel okay? And, and that is what we rest from when we say, I don't I longer trust in my own work to justify my existence. I now trust in God's work, his completed work, not only in creation but on the cross, in recreation. I trust in his work and I enter into his rest. So I'm no longer trying to prove myself. And that means I, I, it, it's because it's tiring to always have to prove yourself. Because it's never enough. Because once you feel you have proven yourself, it only lasts for a little while, and then you have to feel like you have to prove yourself again. So it's just work upon work upon work upon work. It's never enough. And it wears you out. So unless you can enter into God's rest, you cannot actually fully rest. And you'll always be worn out. Does that make sense? And, and that resting is resting in the completed work that he reveals in his word. In Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And then he says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. So God's word is like streams of water. And we are planted next to it and our roots sink into it and drink in the sustaining power of God's word, which is living and active. Um, and we need to learn to rest in God's word, in what God has done, his completed work. And we can very easily rest in, in other things. Um, a while back, I remember Mezen telling us, and, and we had a similar experience where our, our drains get blocked because the trees, the roots of the trees grow into the drain pipes. And the sewage pipes, you know, and then you have to get roto router and those kinds of guys, and they drill the, 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 the roots out, you know, and it's a, it's a big mess. But those tree roots, and, and this guy apparently said to Mezen, uh, I don't know if you remember sharing that with us, Mezen, that tree roots will find water, and even if it's a sewage pipe, it'll grow into that sewage pipe and find the water there. Your roots will do the same. If you do not drink in, if you do not cause your roots to drink in the living water of God's word, it'll find some other sewage pipe somewhere and grow into that and you'll, you'll drink that worldly sewage water. So we must learn to rest in God. It's not enough because many of us, we teach ourselves to rest in binging a series or rest in watching YouTube or rest in whatever, you know. Whatever sewage pipe we choose to let our roots grow into, instead of resting in God and in His Word. Am I the only one that sometimes does that? Is there anyone else who sometimes does that? 
We do that, right? We do that. Okay? But we need to learn to rest in God and His completed work and in His Word. Um, I, I remember um, there, there was a couple who, who lived with us who were part of our congregation in French Hook. And, and the, the gentleman, Rian, once told me he worked at a BP full station. And, and, he, and, he, and he was saying it, you know, as, you know, the younger generation and, and how they, you know, are sometimes weird, you know, because, you know, older generation have a strong work ethic, but sometimes the younger generation don't have it. And he was saying it sort of in, in that light. And he was saying, um, you know, it, it was so weird. He hires this guy, um, you know, to work as a, you know, at, at the full station, this young, young man. He hires him signs a contract with him he works for two weeks and then he disappears and one of his friends comes and he sort of comes in his uniform and he starts working and, and he's like who are you <laughs> and he says no 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 i'm here for so and so you know he says but w- what's wrong and he says is he sick no no he's not sick it's just my turn to work so how they work is they're like three guys working living together and for two weeks two weeks like you know, <laughs> Seriously, this is not a joke. This is a true story. Each one gets a turn for, for two weeks. They work for two weeks, and the others enter into the rest <laughs> of the one who's working. And then it's the next guy's turn to work for two weeks, and the other two enter into the rest of his work. And, and that's how they work. So, so they had these three guys rotating, you know, working for, you know, in, in two-week shifts. And he says he, he couldn't understand that. <laughs> Um, so you have to enter into someone's rest, but don't enter into your buddy's rest. You know, it says <clears throat> if Joshua had given them rest. So the promised land was, and God promised it as a form of rest, but it clearly wasn't the final rest because he said if, if what Joshua had given them by leading them into the promised land was the promised rest of God, the ultimate rest of God, why did David hundreds of years later say, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart enter into my rest. And, and those who don't, who harden their hearts and don't believe, they will not enter into my rest. Why, why did David even say that? If that was so, so Joshua didn't give them rest. But the word Joshua in, in the Greek is, is exactly the same word as Jesus in the Hebrew too. It's the same word. So Joshua didn't give them rest, but he pointed to his namesake who would lead them into an ultimate rest. That's Jesus. And, and it's his work that we intend to rest. And now I just want to close with, <clears throat> with this. He says, how do you intend to that rest? How do you respond to God's word? We must hear God's word. But there are many who have heard and not entered the rest. So hearing by itself is not enough. You must hear not only with your ears, you must hear with your heart. Do not harden your heart. Soften your heart and hear with your heart the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart which the word of God can discern. You must think God's thoughts after him, his word. You must have the right attitude towards God's word of receiving it, softening your heart and receiving it, being responsive to it, believing it. Don't have an evil heart of unbelief that turns away from the living God, but by implication, a good heart of faith, of belief that turns towards the living God. And, and, and follows him and obeys him. And, and I just want to show you this because when I, when I saw this, it sort of helped me a lot. At the end of chapter 3, um, it says in verse 18, 
And to whom did God swear that they will never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? Okay? So we see that they, those who disobeyed, were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The writer to the Hebrews treats unbelief and disobedience almost synonymously. In fact, the implication is that the reason you disobey is because you don't believe. Whenever we disobey, it's because we don't truly believe. Whenever God tells us something, we hear it and we decide not to do it, it's because we don't believe that what he has for us is what's best for us. We think that we know better. We believe that we know better in this case. The opposite is also true. Whenever we truly obey from the heart, we're obeying out of faith, out of trust in God. So, so here's what I want you to see. Obedience is an act of faith. Obedience is an act of faith. When you trust God, then you truly obey Him. Then it's the most natural thing in the world to obey Him. So we must hear, not just with our ears, but with our hearts. And then out of that heart, we must trust God and obey Him. So not... He, with, with, with that generation, the rebellious generation, they heard, they hardened their hearts and they rebelled. We must hear, believe in our hearts and obey. That's how we need to respond to this. And we respond in trust in God because we say to ourselves, if Jesus was willing to do all of that hard work, the perfect life that he lived, despite the temptation. And, and let me tell you, the temptation Jesus experienced was worse than the temptation we experienced. Because usually we can maybe go 50% into the temptation and then we give in sometimes. Sometimes we go through it. But sometimes we give in. Jesus never gave in. And, and, and do you want to tell me that the devil wouldn't give Jesus more personal attention in terms of temptation than he gives me or you? I, I, I'm not even sure the devil knows who I am. <laughs> He probably sent some demons to tempt me. You know, it's not the devil himself tempting me. I, I don't think I'm that important to him. <laughs> you know, but Jesus got personal attention from the devil himself. He got the worst temptation, the strongest temptation, the most insistent temptation, the most powerful temptation, and he worked his whole life to resist all of that. Why? For me. For you. That was his work, living a perfect life that can be credited to our accounts so that we could enter into the rest of the work that he did. But then that wasn't it. <laughs> then he hung on the cross. He was nailed to the cross. Boy, you, you talk about hard work. You talk about uncomfortable work. You talk about painful work. You talk about sacrifice. That was the ultimate work that he did on the cross. Once again for you and me, so that we could enter. And when we see how much his hard work cost him, that should make us say, I don't want to waste the hard work that he did for me. I really want to enter into the rest that he worked to earn for me. I don't want to earn my own rest. I want to enter into the rest that he earned for me. And if he worked, was willing to work that hard for me and give his life as part of his work for me on the cross, then I can trust him that he truly loves me, that he knows what's best for me and he wants what's best for me. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.